Good evening, everybody. It's good to see you. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 21? As we have said several times before, the end of Revelation 20 saw the, fi saw the final judgment uh, on the wicked. And as the final person was cast into the lake of fire, that brought an end to human history. That brought an end to time. Um, and so chapter 21 begins a new uh, era in the lives of redeemed humanity. We move from time into eternity. And Paul, uh, John begins by saying in verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So God is going to completely destroy this present creation that's been tainted by sin, and he's going to recreate it at one point where we're going to live for eternity in a new heavens, new universe, a new earth, and a city called New Jerusalem. And um, John, uh, John said in verse 4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Now, verse 7 does strike fear into the hearts of many Christians because they see in this idea of being an overcomer something they have to do, some work they have to perform, some level of holiness they have to measure up to. And of course, every one of us knows that we are not the Christians we would like to be, that we fail a lot. And we're ashamed to admit it, but we do. And so this idea that only overcomers will inherit heaven terrifies a lot of Christians. Until you read what John said in 1 John 5, verse 5. Who is he who overcomes the world? He, I, don't, I don't want to put a space there. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So how are we overcomers? By believing. It's all about grace, which means unmerited favor, undeserved blessing. Heaven is not a reward for good works. It is a place where sinners saved by grace will live forever. So we are overcomers if we believe in Jesus Christ with all our heart and are born again. Now, feminists... <laughs> read if they do read the bible at all they look for the stuff they can criticize and uh, they have found in verse 7 a doozy uh he who overcomes shall inherit all things and i will be his god and he shall be my son see there you go where are the women you know i mean how fair is that you christians you know and your god is a sexist god he doesn't mention the women at all there's a reason for that in heaven there are going to be no women as we think of women. Because in that culture, back in John's day, first century, women were not looked upon um, as being very worth anything. Uh, I've told you this before. Uh, in that culture, when a woman went into labor, uh, the whole village gathered outside with food and instruments. If the word came back, it's a boy. They struck up the band and had a big feast. If word came, it's a girl. They all packed up and went home. Now, it's not fair. It's not right. That's just the way it was. And so if God would have said in the new, you know, in the new Jerusalem in heaven, uh, you know, I'm going to have sons and daughters, the ladies would have thought, oh, here we go again. Second-class citizens on earth, now in heaven. And God would say, no, in heaven you're all sons. There are no second-class citizens. You're all sons in the sense that there are there there is nobody above uh, anyone is in the sense that 
being better than another, being more loved than uh, another, right? So, um, no second-class citizens in heaven. Verse 8, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Notice the first one. But the cowardly are going to wind up in the lake of fire. Um, what exactly does that mean? Well, obviously, it's talking about those people that were too afraid to accept Christ because they didn't, know, didn't want their friends to you know, ostracize them. Uh, they were afraid that they would commit social suicide. Maybe they wouldn't get the promotion if their boss knew that they were a Christian. And so the cowardly, those who um, didn't make a commitment to Christ, Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven, right? And if you're unwilling to do that because you're too afraid of what people think, well, then you're going to wind up spending eternity apart from God, right? Now, how does this differ from the second one, unbelieving? But the cowardly, unbelieving. They're the same thing, aren't they? Well, yes and no. The unbelieving is a reference to all unbelievers, and some of these people would be atheists, militant atheists, right? Where the cowardly, I'm convinced, are going to be made up of people, some of whom, maybe many of whom, actually did believe in Jesus Christ. What do I mean? Well, they went to church. They grew up in church. They went to Sunday school and Awanas and things like that. They knew Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, died for their sins, rose again the third day from the dead. They believe all of that. They really did. But you can believe all of it with your head and still not bring it down into your heart where you make a commitment to Christ. And therefore, even though you have the right information, you're too scared to act on it. You're too much of a coward. I am convinced that hell is going to be loaded with a lot, I'm not saying the majority, but with a lot of people who knew the truth and actually believed in the gospel, but never made Jesus their Savior. They were cowardly. So, you know, and, and, and there's a lot of folks that would read this, this list, you know, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderer, sexually immoral, sorcerer, <laughs> that's not me. I'm such a good person. Yeah, these folks, they deserve to go to hell. But I'm a good person, and you know what? This list doesn't pertain to me. It pertains to others. And they read until they come down to that last one. And all liars shall have their part in the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone. And then they panic. And then they panic. Because who hasn't lied? This is the one we get people with when we go out and ask them, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? You know, we, we, you know if, if you stood before the Lord, if you were to die tonight, you stood before the Lord, uh, and he asked you, um, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And they, most times they say, well, because I'm a good person. All right, well, let's explore that, because the Bible says everybody pretty much declares they're a good person, right? Have you ever stolen anything? Now, usually they'll say, oh, no, not even a piece of gum when you were a kid. Well, and I know better, okay? Uh, we've all taken things. You ever, you ever stolen from the government? Well, that's not fair. The government deserves to be stolen. Well, okay. The Bible says pay your taxes, though, okay? Um, all right, we'll leave it at that. Um, but, but the idea of lying, a lot of times people want to, you know, defend themselves by saying, well, I, I, I never lie. Well, that's not true. You're a liar right now, I can guarantee you that. Um, but you have to understand something here. And, and this does really uh, causes a lot of um, anxiety in Christians. Because they read these sins and they go, wow, I mean, I've, I, I've um, done some pretty bad things. I've been sexually immoral. Um, I've lied. So does that mean I'm out? Does that mean I can't be saved? Here, understand this. This list is not really a list of sins. 
but actually categories of sinners. If you miss that, you're going to be messed up. God said when he created everything, remember in Genesis 1, he said that everything would bring forth after its what? Kind. Now, of course, he was speaking agriculturally, but it also applies to different things. Jesus put it this way. You will know true believers and unbelievers by their fruit. By their fruit. And so, guys, sinning doesn't make you a sinner. It just proves that you are one. That's the bottom line. What Paul is talking about is not individual acts of sin. He's talking about a nature that brings forth fruits of sin. Because that's what's going on. Um, there's a similar list in Revelation 22, verse 15. I'll read it to you, but outside are dogs. I was asked about this earlier. Are puppies going to hell? Uh, no, uh, no, that's not what's going on here. Sometimes God will liken human beings to unclean animals. Don't cast your pearls before the swine. Talking about unbelievers who mock and ridicule and they don't want to know the truth. Why are you wasting your time, right? Move on to somebody else who's more open. So no, outside our dogs is just a reference to unclean individuals um, and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever, listen, loves and practices a lie. Any one of us as Christians can lie. I hope we don't, but we do sometimes. But these are folks that love and practice lying. What did Jesus say about about Satan and John 8 he is the father of lies when he lies he is speaking his native language now there's a difference between a Christian and I don't advocate for it and I don't I'm not trying to justify it it's one thing if a Christian lies and then it's like I didn't want to I shouldn't have done it I lied it was wrong I repent you know than it is for an unbeliever who relishes in speaking lies. We have a lot of leaders in our political arena. It's like everything out of their mouth is a lie. Um, and that to me, as Jesus told the Pharisees, the reason you lie is because you're of your father, the devil. Now this one I want you to turn to, 1 Corinthians 6, and you know it, I've mentioned it many times. First Corinthians 6, let's pick it up in verse 9. Because this goes along with exactly what we're talking about, and this is one of the classic passages on, the, on this very issue we're talking about. So 1 Corinthians 9, excuse me, uh, chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And people read this as Christians and they go, good Lord, I've committed some of these things. Does that mean I've disqualified myself from ever going to heaven? Well, it would sound like it. It almost sounds that way, doesn't it? But read on. Verse 11, and such, listen, were some of you. Notice he doesn't say, and such did some of you. Such were some of you. He's not talking about individual sins. He's talking about character, nature, nature, a person's nature. Uh, we all at one time had that fallen nature. And we followed what the flesh wanted us to do because we were children of the devil, basically. But Paul goes on to say, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Yeah, it's called being born again and being made a new creation with a new nature. Remember what Peter said, 2 Peter 1.4? When you gave your heart to Christ, the Holy Spirit moved in and you became at that point a partaker of God's divine nature. So we were this way. This is who we were. And yes, of course, we did all kinds of things 
that were the fruit of our fallen natures, lying and stealing and committing uh, immorality and fornication and so on. It's, you know, it just the list went on and on. But again, guys, Paul is saying that sinners of all different categories can be redeemed and cleansed. Further, we know that even children of God can fall into any, any one of these sins uh, at any given time. God forbid that we should, but sometimes we do. And yet, the Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, we there's forgiveness. There's cleansing. If we fall into one of these sins, we are broken and come before God and confess that sin, say, Lord, I was wrong. I, I know what your word says. I did it anyways. Please forgive me. I repent. And God says, that's all I want to hear. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us all over again, right? But again, guys, Paul isn't talking about sins being committed, actions. He's talking about categories of sinners whose sins are the fruit of their nature. Uh, let me say this. While it's true that believers will sometimes sin, listen, we no longer practice sin. In fact, John lifts that up in 1 John 3, I believe, as the litmus test to what nature you're functioning from. Fallen nature, you're unsaved. Or a redeemed nature, you're a child of God. And he says, here's the litmus test. Unbelievers practice sin because it's their nature. The Greek is they live habitually in sin. Now, Christians, we can sin, but it's not our nature to live habitually in sin any longer. The Holy Spirit's going to convict us like crazy. Look at David. Now, he committed some pretty egregious sins. He, he committed adultery with another man's wife and had him knocked off. He had him murdered. For a guy like David, a man after God's own heart, that's pretty grotesque. And for a whole year, he was out of fellowship. Read Psalm 51, Psalm 32. David talks about that year and how miserable he was. The hand of the Lord was heavy upon me. It's called conviction. And when we sin, God loves us too much to let us continue in that sin. He'll tur turn up the heat. He will make it rough on us. As Christians, we should be able to say, God won't let me get away with anything. Not that I want to, but when I go down that path or contemplate going down that path of disobedience, wow, does he bring the conviction because he loves us and he doesn't want us to live in sin. But as Christians, we wouldn't live habitually in sin because we can backslide, certainly. I know Christians that have backslidden for a period of time and maybe you know walked away from the Lord and started living with a guy or a gal. But the Holy Spirit is working. If you're really a child of God, you're not going to be able to have a moment's rest until you make peace with God by repenting and getting your life right. And if you can sin habitually, and things are great. You're happy. You know, you're being blessed in some way. I would really question your walk. I would really question your relationship with God. Um, you know, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Perfectly? No. But the general pattern of a Christian's life is to follow the Lord and be obedient to what he has said. Once in a while we step off the path, once in a while we can backslide. But if you're really a child of God with the Holy Spirit living inside of you, he's going to be on you day and night because he loves you. And does not, he wants to, look, I've said this before, let me say it again. Our sins will not cause God to disown us. He loves us. He's promised he would never leave us nor forsake us, right? But it's like this. If my children, when they were little, disobeyed their mom and I and tried to reason with them and they kept disobeying and whatever they did, I would never disown them in the sense I'd throw them out of the family, but I wouldn't take them for ice cream either. Because you can't bless rebellion. And this is what God is saying. God loves us so much, he wants to bless our lives, like any father does his children. But he can't bless rebellion. And that's what it's all, but he chastens us. He wants us to repent, right? Um, anyway, I like what uh, commentator Ray Stedman said. He's a great commentator. He's with the Lord. 
But uh, I like what he said on this, uh, on this subject from his commentary on Revelation. He said, and I quote, In this passage we find three attitudes which result in five forms of visible behavior. These attitudes and forms of behavior mark those who are lost and who will not be a part of that holy city in the new earth. First of the cowardly, those who are fearful, unwilling to take the yoke of Christ upon themselves, afraid to confess Jesus Christ, unwilling to be uh, in, the, in the minority or, uh, uh, or on the unpopular side of things, afraid of the risks entailed in being a follower of Christ, they turn their backs on the offer of life. Second are the unbelieving, those who willfully refuse to believe what their hearts tell them is true. They reject the evidence because they don't want God to invade their self-centered lives. Third are the vile, those whose way of life has become foul, foul and abominable. They love the stink of their own sin and would scratch and claw anyone who tries to rescue them from it. They feed their minds with vile books, vile movies, and vile music. They speak vile speech and practice a vile lifestyle. These, then, are the three deadly attitudes, the cowardly, the unbelieving, and the vile. And out of these attitudes flow evil behavior, such as murder, sexual immorality, involvement in the occult and demonic arts, idolatry, uh, and lying or hypocrisy. No one, who, uh, uh, no one who, refusing redemption, gives him or herself over uh, giving himself or herself over to such behavior will be found in the city of God, end quote. All right, verse 9. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now, guys, we haven't seen this angel for a thousand earth years. Ever since chapter 16, when John saw these angels pouring out God's final bowls of wrath on, you know, during the tribulation period, well, that was at the end of the tribulation period. Then Christ came back, established his kingdom. That was a thousand years. Now we're in the eternal state. And, and for John, it seems like he just saw this angel a couple hours ago. We just had lunch, you know, a couple hours ago, or maybe yesterday. Because at this point, we have moved from time into eternity. Now, John is still a creature of time in that he's a first century man. But the Holy Spirit took him in the spirit and transported him uh, out of time into the eternal realm where God dwells. And for God, everything is happening in the eternal present tense. So uh, at any given time, God sees Adam and Eve in the garden. He sees the culmination of all things and the eternal state established. Um, and John, because he's in the realm of the Spirit now, is able to see what God sees. In fact, God is showing him uh, using various angels and even the Lord himself pointing things out to John. And John is accumulating all this information. And God, uh, the Lord said last week, remember, he said, uh, John, write all the things I've shown you. Because you got one more assignment, John. Um, even though you're on the island of Patmos, I'm going to release you soon. And you're going to need to write all this down and share it with the churches of Asia Minor, which John was the overseer. And, of course, they would then share it with the rest of the body of Christ. Um, so even though this angel poured out one of the bowls of, of uh, judgments of chapter 16 over a thousand years ago, it's no big deal for John. He doesn't say, wow, it's been a long time since I've seen you. No, it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that guy, yeah, he just poured out the, the bowl, one of the bowls of God's wrath. It was a long time ago, John. Oh, no, really, it's a few minutes ago. I don't, it seemed like a couple, couple minutes ago, right? Interesting realm of the Spirit. We're going to experience that someday. It's just interesting, okay? Um, and yet, there's going to be a verse we'll look at, um, maybe next time, about is God saying there's going to be time in the eternal state? We'll see. But um, as you look at this passage, guys, um, I'm thinking of verse 12 in particular. It almost sounds like John is saying that the city is the bride. 
But the city, New Jerusalem, isn't the bride. The city is being described and identified by its inhabitants. It's kind of like when people sing, and I haven't heard it for a long time, but we're from Chicago, we're, you know, that's our city. It's when, like when people sing, Chicago is my kind of town. They aren't talking about the bricks and mortar. They're referring to the heart or the spirit of the city. The people is what is the idea, the people. And the same is true with the city. The city isn't the bride, but it's the bride's city. Some of it have called it the bride city, the bride city. Verse 10, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Let me stop there. Guys, this city is so big that to see it in all of its fullness and glory, God's got to take John way far away. How far, we don't know. And he has to stick him on top of a very, very high mountain so John can see the entire city laid out before him. It's that massive. And God wants him to get a view of the entire scope of this incredible city called New Jerusalem. Um, you say, what about this high mountain? There are going to be mountains on the new earth? Sounds like it. Good news for all you mountain climbers. I don't know how many mountain climbers we have here in the Midwest, but, you know, might be some of you. God bless you. Uh, enjoy yourselves. But, um, uh, but, but, yeah, I mean, you know, he took me far away, put me on top of a high mountain so I could see the whole city descending from heaven. Verse 11. The city had the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Guys, the word light uh, is the Greek word foster. It means illuminator. We get our English word phosphate or phosphorus from that Greek word. Um, this is interesting to me. Apparently, this city doesn't just reflect and refract light. It absorbs and radiates light. Verse 20, uh, Revelation 21, verse 23, The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The, land, excuse me, the Lamb is its light. New Jerusalem seems like it's going to be a city that's going to absorb and radiate the glory or the light of God uh, much the same way Moses' face absorbed and then radiated God's glory uh, after he spoke with the Lord face to face on Mount Sinai. You remember that story. He was up there 40 days and 40 nights. When he came down, his face was shining. So what did he do? He put a veil over his face. Now, when you read, I think it was Exodus, when you read that in the Old Testament, you think, well, he did that because... The glory, the radiance was just blinding people and he had to kind of, you know, he put a veil over his face so that people wouldn't be blinded. Paul tells us in the New Testament, no, that's not what happened. He put a veil over his face because the glory was fading. And, and Moses didn't want the people to realize that the old covenant which he had just received from God on Mount Sinai was temporary. A lot of work was going to go into this system. I mean, keeping all these laws and, and dietary rules and animal sacrifices and all the whole thing of the law was going to be very tedious and laborious. And Moses knew if they knew right up front this whole thing was going to pass away, they'd probably say, well, we're not signing up for this then. If this is temporary, we don't want nothing to do with it. But of course, the Old Testament glory was going to fade away because a new covenant was going to come. A covenant made in Christ's blood. Um, and, and that would be the new covenant. And the glory of that covenant would never fade away. It would be forever. Because Christ is eternal. And it all is based on him. Right? Um, so in New Jerusalem, seems like, kind of like Moses, it seems to absorb God's radiant glory. And the city, you know, if you've ever had something that uh, absorbs light and then you put it in a dark room if, and how it just, you know, it, is, is that phosphorus? Uh, I, I, I forgot what exactly, but, you know, i gotta, I got to watch that. It works really good. I mean, if, if you put it, if you wear it out in the uh, sunlight and all, then you 
put it in a dark room, the dial really illuminates, right? And kind of, I kind of get the impression New Jerusalem is going to be like that. It's just going to absorb God's glory, and it's going to radiate um, with his light. Interesting uh, phenomenon, right? Um, but John describes the city like one big jasper stone, clear as crystal. Think of a diamond or a giant uh, Swarovski crystal. You ever seen those Swarovski crystals? Beautiful. Beautiful. They're not diamonds, but they're very beautiful, right? Um, we all know what happens when you shine a bright light through a multifaceted diamond or a crystal. It's a prism. And it shoots multicolored light in all directions. Think of an entire city like that. And as God's glory radiates through this city, as it hits, you know, the walls of the city, it's going to just shoot multicolored light throughout the universe. In fact, in 1 Peter 4, verse 10, Peter mentions the manifold grace of God. The word manifold in the Greek means multicolored. Multicolored. I mean, guys, think about it. What did John see? He's trying his best to communicate to us what he saw. But let's be honest, he's a first century guy. I mean, we got the benefit of Star Wars and special effects, and we can better uh, communicate something like this than John could live in 2,000 years ago. But he's trying his best to communicate something and, and, and all. And even though he's very limited in what he can use as imagery to communicate what he is saying, it's still coming through pretty spectacularly just to hear what this simple man is trying to communicate to us about this city. I mean, what did he see? It's hard to imagine just what this city is going to look like the first time we see it. In fact, Bible teacher Dave Hawking, who I know very well, Dave's been at, out to our men's retreat a few times, uh, but Bible teacher Dave Hawking said that he actually submitted a, a description of the New Jerusalem to a professional gemologist who teaches at the University of Los Angeles. And after reviewing the information, this expert on gems said, and I'm quoting him, if this is true, it's going to be the most spectacular sight that the human eye has ever seen. And in fact, I doubt seriously that without a radical change of the human eye that we could possibly stand the sight of it uh, for all of its brilliance, end quote. So, wow. Verse 12. Also she, again talking about the New Jerusalem, also she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on these gates, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Turn to Ezekiel uh, 48. I want to show you something, because Ezekiel actually prophesies of what we're studying right now. Ezekiel 48, let's just read the last few verses, uh, starting with verse 30. Now, these are the exits of the city. On the north side, measuring 4,500 cubits, the gates of the city shall be named after the uh, tribes of Israel, the three gates northward, one gate for Reuben, one gate for Judah, Levi, and he goes on to list, right, on the east side, 4,005. So he just keeps talking about these gates and each of the tribes they were named after. Verse 35, all the way around shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that day shall be, shall be the Lord is there. We talked about this last time. The thing that's going to make New Jerusalem so spectacular is not really the streets of gold and pearly gates and the, the diamond of a, of a city that it will be. The thing that's going to make it spectacular is it's the Lord is going to be there. The Lord will be there physically, if we can use that expression in those days, 
literally, right? Um, now, guys, something that you, you, I need to bring up, um, maybe you have never heard of this, but uh, as you study Revelation, you'll, you'll get different opinions about some things. Uh, there are those who believe that because this is the bride city, um, they think, and they think of the bride as only referring to the church, the bride of Christ, um, they believe that the inhabitants of this city will be made up uh, solely of uh, church-age Christians. The church age uh, runs from Pentecost to the rapture. So we're still in the church age. Everybody saved from Pentecost to the rapture is going to be part of the bride of Christ. And because this is called the bride city, they believe that only uh, a church is going to be uh, living in this city. What's going to happen to everyone else? Where are they going to live? On the earth somewhere. Okay. It's kind of like the Jehovah's Witness doctrine. What do I mean? Well, the JWs always taught when they first started that whenever whenever a certain number was reached, 144,000, that that would be it, and they would be taken to live in heaven. There are only going to be 144,000 JWs, uh, and that would be it. Well, when their number eclipsed that, they had to rework their theology. So what they came up was with, well, the first 144,000 will live in heaven. And the rest of the JWs, they're going to live on earth. Now, I don't want to put anybody down. I'm not saying that they believe what the JWs teach is true. It's just that when you have this idea that um, only the church lives in the New Jerusalem, and, and that may be for a while. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Um, and, but that's it, though. For all eternity, only the church. Um, I think there's a problem with that. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Um, verse 12 seems to indicate that believing Israel will also be a part of this city's occupants. Um, the fact that the gates into the city have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on them well, I think it's significant because, you know, they seem to be included in this city. The the 12 gates have the names of the 12 tribes. Ezekiel actually names which tribes will be on each of the gates, right? Um, but, but that is significant because here's the thing. Uh, our access into this city, now as Gentiles, Christians, our access into this city is in effect, listen, through the nation of Israel. Didn't Jesus say salvation is of the Jews? Right? I mean, Paul said in Romans, you don't have to turn there, but in Romans 9, Paul basically lay, lays out the argument that, look, the only way we've been adopted into the family of God as Gentiles is because of Israel. And because that through them Messiah came. And he died for our sins, allowing God to adopt us into the family of God and so on. The covenants, the promises, it all belonged to Israel. And now we've been grafted in to those promises, Romans 11, right? But if it wasn't for the Jews, we, would, we, we, couldn't, be, we, we couldn't be saved because Messiah came. It was a Jewish promise to Abraham that in your seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. That seed was Christ. Jesus Christ would come and be the Messiah and the Savior for all mankind, not just the Jewish people, but he would come from Israel. And initially, uh, during his ministry, he told his disciples, go out and only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why? Because they should have first dibs in this promise being fulfilled of the kingdom. I'm here now. As the Messiah, I'm here. And, and they should have first dibs on receiving the gospel. Now, later on, when Israel basically rejected Jesus, the leadership, some of the Jews received Christ as their Messiah. Um, then Jesus said, now go out to the way of the Gentiles. Um, but salvation is of the Jews. They, they should have first dibs on receiving the gospel, right? Uh, Revelation 21, verse 14 
Now the wall of the, city, of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names, oh listen, of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So guys, it seems that from verses 12 and then verse 14, both the Old Testament and New Testament saints will be citizens of the New Jerusalem. Hold on to that thought, though. There's a caveat. And I'm not sure it's true, but I will share it with you. But let me just say this first. So there's going to be uh, 12 foundations the city is going to be built on, which are going to be the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. But here's the problem. There are some uh, who debate who the 12th apostle is. Now, when Judas betrayed the Lord and went out and hung himself in Acts chapter 1, they were really hepped up on how they needed to replace him, right? And so they picked a couple of guys, good men, cast lots, lots fell on Matthias. He was numbered with the 12, and that's it. And a lot of people say, well, he's the 12th apostle. A couple things. First of all, they weren't spirit-filled in Acts chapter 1. And so they're, they're doing what they thought was right based on the imagination of their heart, not necessarily being led by the Holy Spirit, right? And then years later, here comes a guy, Paul the Apostle, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. I'm one who was born out of due season, Paul said. I wasn't with the twelve. But God has called me to be an apostle. He says, have not the works of an apostle been done through me? Haven't I seen the risen Christ? Haven't I worked miracles? Paul was claiming apostleship based on the qualifications. He fulfilled them. So I think Paul was the, I, I heard one pastor on the radio one time, basically say, if you think it was Paul, that's heresy. I'm like, heresy? How, how is that heresy? Good heavens, talk about, you know, straining gnats. We can disagree on some non-essentials. Heresies when you deny the basics. Uh, I was thinking it was Paul and not Matthias, heresy. You know, some people need to throttle back a little bit. In their zeal to always prove themselves right, they attack everybody else that disagrees with them. It's not just that I think you're wrong. It's your evil. Okay, well, nice talking to you. It's not going to happen again for a while. Um, all right, so, so verse 15. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city. So it's an angel uh, to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. Now, guys, again, you may not realize this, but there are those who argue that this city, listen, isn't real. It isn't real. Or it's not, a, it's not a literal city. What is it? Symbolic. Allegorical, right? And coming from that frame of mind, then they spiritualize everything that talks about the city. I personally believe that this city is literal, not symbolic. And I believe that in part because of the fact that measurements are given. If this was an allegorical city, what has God given us measurements for? Isn't that the Holy Spirit's way of saying this is not allegorical? This is a literal city because I'm measuring it. And there's, you know, and, and, and this is the problem with this idea that it was just allegorical. There's no purpose for God giving us measurements, dimensions, if this thing isn't real, right? Uh, if it's just an allegorical depiction. Uh, they do this with Ezekiel. You don't have to turn there because I'm not going there. But in Ezekiel uh, chapters 40 to 43 especially, there is a temple presented there. And uh, it's not Solomon's temple. Um, so many think it's the millennial temple, the millennial kingdom temple. And I that sounds good for me because, I mean, it doesn't really fit any other temple. Uh, there's five temples starting with Solomon and Solomon's and uh, you know and, and so the, the fifth one would be uh, the millennial temple right? Um, and so a lot of commentators read Ezekiel 
uh, chapters 40 through 43 and say, no, this is all symbolic. It's not a real temple. I challenge you to read those chapters. God goes into great meticulous detail. I mean, why would the Lord go into such detail with the measurements and dimensions if it was not real? That's the only reason the Holy Spirit does that. He's trying to emphasize, guys, this is not symbolic or allegorical. This is a real temple. So I, I look at that as a, a real thing. But there are people that do it all the time. Come to a, a passage that conflicts with their theology or they can't figure it out. It's, it's just spiritual. Well, that does great harm to God's Word. Some of the things in God's Word are symbolic. Um, you know, I am the door, Jesus said. If anyone comes any other way, the same as a thief and robber, well, he's not literally made out of wood. Uh, the Bible talks about us taking refuge under the shadow of God's wings. He's not big bird. So there is some symbi some symbology in the, in the Word. But the rule is, you take everything as literally as possible until it's obviously symbolic. All right, well, verse 16. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. The results of the angel's measuring revealed that the city is laid out as a giant cube. Its height uh, and depth and width, all measuring 12,000 furlongs. The Greek is stadia, stadia. A stadion was about 650 feet. Thus, the city walls are about 1,500 miles high, well, in height and depth uh, and in width. It's a perfect cube. Now, I will warn you, there are commentators, and there are not a few of them, there's a, there's a good number, that have suggested that the city is actually in the shape of a pyramid. A pyramid. And you can get that from these, you know, measurements, the way it's worded. However, I think it's best to see it as a cube and not a pyramid. And I think Henry Morris... Um, lays it out pretty well for the argument that it's not a pyramid. Let me read what he And I want to quote Henry. Uh, maybe we don't have enough time tonight. But I love this section of his commentary in Revelation. It brings out so many neat things. And so I'm going to quote him quite a bit. But let me just quote him with regard to this idea the city might be a pyramid. Um, he said, and I quote, Such an interpretation is quite forced. However, the, the language of the passage being much more naturally understood to mean a cube with the length and breadth and height all the same. The um, pyramidal shape, pyramid, uh, whether as in Egypt, Mexico, or the stepped towers of practically all ancient nations, seems always to have, uh, have been associated with paganism, with the pyramid's apex being dedicated to the worship of the sun or the host of heaven. The first such structure was the Tower of Babel. And the Bible always later condemns worship carried on the high places. You can read Leviticus 26, verse 30. Um, it always condemns worship being conducted on the high places, whether these were simply naturally natural high hills or artificially constructed hills in the form of a pyramid or ziggurat. The cube was the shape specified by God for the holy place. If you study Solomon's temple, uh, 1 Kings 6, verse 20 is a place to start, um, you will notice that the temple proper of Solomon's temple was 20 cubits wide, which is 30 feet. Talk about that more in a second. Uh, 30 feet deep, uh, 30 feet high. It was a perfect cube. It was a per and, it, and this city is, um, well, it's being designed or God built it around the same principle he used for Solomon's temple in the sense that uh, the temple itself was a, was a cube, right? Um, so uh, Morris is saying, look, you see the pyramid all throughout paganism. God never uses pyramids for anything. Pyramids are of the occult. Uh, 
Often these pyramids were used uh, and the top was actually flattened and they would get up there where they worship the sun, moon, stars, the hosts of heaven, and so on. So why would God want to make this city to look like a pyramid when all of that conjures up you know, impressions or uh, uh, mental images of paganism? I don't see how he would do that. Um, he said, the cube was the shape specified by God for the holy place in Solomon's temple where God was to dwell between the cherubim. Both the language and the symbology thus favor the cubical rather than the pyramidal shape, end quote. Um, let me, I can't. All right. There are some very interesting things that about this city that I think you're going to find interesting, and I don't want to rush through it, so let's put it on hold. Uh, come back next week. Now, uh, next week, we, we're definitely going to finish chapter uh, 21. And chapter 20, I'm sorry, not next week. I'm trying my wife to say that. Uh, she keeps me in line. Uh, next Wednesday, we will not meet because it's the day before Thanksgiving. We're going to take off so you guys can beat your families. The week after that, we will meet again, finish up chapter 21. And then the week after that, chapter 22 is, I think, a one-week study. So we're only a couple studies away from being finished. Okay. And if you say hallelujah, you're in trouble. <laughs> but I, what I would want you to do is pray about what we're going to do next. Pray about what God would want us to do next, uh, what book to study. And we'll come back and uh, finish Revelation and get going with this, a new book. So let's pray. Father, we thank you and love you, Lord, for your grace, your love. We thank you for giving us such a great look at what's coming. It just brings such joy into our hearts, Lord, to know that there is a city that we're going to live in that's going to be absolutely incredible, a place where no evil will ever enter, and we just thank you. And so, Lord, we ask you to keep, to, uh, keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.